0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Cocoa. I'm Lauren Hynek, the host and producer of this podcast. This series stems from over six years of industry work, conversations with peers, collaborators, and mentors. You can find more of my writings and stay updated to future podcasts at laurenontheweekend.substack.com that's W-K-N-D, as well as find me on Twitter at WeekendChocolate, and Instagram, Lauren on the Weekend. If you're in a position to support these podcasts and find this content useful, please think about becoming an annual subscriber. Thanks again for your support. I really appreciate you. Today, in conversation with Lauren Adler, Chief Chocophile of Chocolopolis, and board president of the FCIA, Fine Chocolate Industry Association. Lauren Adler is here with me today. Really excited to have this opportunity. I've been
1: following her work for quite a while. I'm sure many of you have seen her, heard her, been a part of experiences and conferences where she has given talks and shared her knowledge. But today we're going to reflect on some very interesting perspectives that she has in how Chocolopolis has evolved over the years and get to know a little bit more about how we can be resilient in our work and stick through very sticky times in the market and just in general where the world seems to be heading. So Lauren, thank you for coming to join me today.
2: Thank you so much,
1: Lauren. I'm really excited
2: to be here. I love your work, and it's just really an honor to be here. So I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: I'm happy to hear it. Happy to have you. A really great place to start would just be, if you would, giving us a condensed version of the history of Chocolopolis and where we can find you today, as well as maybe just some of the kind of initial blossoming aspects of the idea and concept.
2: Sure thing. I opened the retail store on July 2nd of 2008. You know, I had been planning it for probably a couple of years before that and really started getting into chocolate at that point. You know, it was not the greatest time to be opening a retail store. It was two months before we had the economic crash and it was a new concept, right? So at that point, there were six American craft chocolate makers, five were actually producing Askinosie, Amano, Patrick, DeVries, who had stopped producing at that point, Taza, and then Rogue Chocolatier you know, they were the craft chocolate makers. Just backing up a little bit, one of the things I really love is educating people. And I love thinking about how do you provide information in a way that's interesting and meaningful and helps get a concept across. I had decided to, one, have a large library of single origin craft chocolate bars, but then also arrange them by cacao origin. Like when you walk into a wine store and they have, you know, wines arranged by maybe where the grapes were grown or what have you. So I arranged Chocolopolis so that there was, you know, a Venezuela section, an Ecuador section, a Madagascar section, and so on. So that it would help get across the message to consumers that this is different than the chocolate you're used to eating and tasting. And it's going to cost more, but, you know, here it is. It's a point of discovery. Let's think about origin. And at the time, because there were only these six craft chocolate makers, the only other ones available at that point. So you had like Demore, Amade, Valrona. I had chocolate rice. I'm sure I'm missing plenty, but gives you an idea of those plus the American makers. So one thing I would say is it is a tall order to open a business with a new concept (laughs) in an economic decline, which of course, when you sign the lease and you start doing your build out, you have no idea it's going to be an economic decline. It was interesting. When I reflect back on that, I'm thinking, what was I thinking? (laughs) But it gave me the platform to really uh, work on the education piece, which I love. And I was pleasantly surprised. One thing I noticed, I was in the Queen Anne neighborhood of Seattle, and I chose that neighborhood because of the demographics, right? It's very high income. It's this lovely neighborhood. It's in the city. It has a lovely retail strip with good amount of foot traffic, which of course is very important. And I thought, oh, my customers, I'm going to have to teach them about dark chocolate. Luckily, I didn't. They came in and they were already a dark chocolate crowd, but they did not know single origin bean to bar. And they'd never seen what at the time was probably about a 6 or $7 bar of chocolate, which was very expensive. So it was a lot of education, which again, I, I enjoy, but it was challenging. It was a challenging business as the economy was tanking.
1: I think it's interesting to consider where we are in this moment two years into the pandemic, there's a bit of history repeating itself. We're unsure of what might happen. There's a lot of speculation about markets, about booms and busts. And you could also argue in a way that there's still so much education to be done that people just don't have any concept of what fine chocolate is. Do you feel like it's scarier in this very time to open up a craft chocolate concept or was there a bit of like naivete that l- went along with 2008 or a bit of like newness that made it easier
2: just different yes there's definitely naivete but i think anybody who's going to open their own business has some level of naivete and they have to because if they <laughs> knew what reality was they probably wouldn't do it right i said that after i opened i was like i'm glad i didn't know this was going to happen because i never would have done this and i'm really glad i did it when you open your own business it does take some sort of naivete I guess it's a little bit different now. I would say there's a different set of issues. There's always going to be something, right? So now it's a little bit different. So now you've got a craft chocolate market that is more established, but not not very established. And, And I'll get into my concerns as just looking at the market in a minute. But you also have a more saturated market. So you still don't have enough consumer demand for people wanting to pay what is now $10 to $12 a bar of chocolate. And on top of it, you've got tons of craft chocolate makers. So there's all this supply, but there's not enough demand to support that supply. And so I think that's probably one of the bigger issues. Now, there's a lot more awareness, people are more willing to, but it's still this tiny segment of the market. You know, I'm going to jump around on a couple of tangents here. But one with the FCIA, what I'm really interested with there is it is a nonprofit trade association. My big goal is how do we increase consumer demand for fine chocolate, because that's the best way to support our members. Backing up to what I was saying about Chocolopolis, how when we opened, there were five American craft chocolate makers and a bunch of Europeans. This takes me to another piece of it, which is when more craft chocolate makers started coming on the market. At first, I was like, oh, this is great. I'll just bring them in. And I brought them in without really knowing anything about them and started tasting their chocolate after I'd already purchased their inventory and put it on the shelves. And I was like, oh, this isn't that good. <laughs> there was sort of this awkward period where you had more new chocolate makers entering the market. A lot of them were like, oh, I've always wanted to make chocolate. I'm making chocolate and I'm going to sell it to you. Maybe they hadn't spent two or three or four or five years perfecting their craft before they did it. So we sort of went through this awkward period where I was getting a lot of stuff where I was like, I can't sell this. Certainly not for $10. I can't recommend this. What happens as a business, as you called it, the library concept that we had, had a lot of money tied up in inventory because we had to have a lot of inventory. It was about selection. Customers would come in. They would fall in love with a particular bar. And then I couldn't really take that one out of inventory because they loved it. And it was one we liked. And then I had to add stuff. So here I am adding these new makers. At the time, there were only a few, I didn't think their chocolate was that great after bringing it in. So I had to like eliminate them because I'm like one, I'm putting my money into this and inventory. And if it's sitting there, I'm not making a lot of money in this. I need to keep it moving. And if it's not moving, it's got to go. And I need to make room for something else. There was that awkward period where there were all these new ones coming in, but a lot of them weren't that great. Then it became clear that we needed to curate. For me, it is all about quality. If I don't like something, not only am I not putting my brand behind it, but I'm not going to end up selling it. There have been situations where I've gotten a batch of chocolate from a maker we all know and love. I'm just saying in general, it's not a specific maker, but the batch I might get might not taste anything like the last batch I had. And in fact, it might be quite bad but now it's sitting on my shelf and I'm not going to recommend it to customers. So it just sits there and sits there and sits there. And that's happened to me. And it's really challenging. Going back to your original question of what are the issues today? I think now you do have a lot more supply, so You have a lot more to choose from. If I were opening up the concept again, it would be all about the curation, which is kind of where we ended, but that's not where we started. But I do think that again, the supply and demand, the lack of consumer demands, keeping up with the supply is one of the challenges.
1: Great. For the audience that is listening, I do usually prepare an outline for guests. And then once we're face-to-face, uh, our conversation can go in many different directions. And with that, I would really love to continue with something that wasn't exactly within our outline. I think if you're running a, a concept store that is around your own chocolate making, when you get a batch of beans that you need to tweak a bit further or you have to kind of ride out in a chocolate chip cookie recipe rather than a finalized bar, was that the moment when you also then incorporated, okay, I have this inventory, I have this stock and I can't sell them as single origin bars, but I could maybe incorporate you know, XYZ or would you just take a loss with whatever that product was?
2: We never did be in the bar. We did do some confectionery work. But what I would say to the chocolate makers who do, don't sell me that product. If you are not 100% happy with that batch and you feel like it's not up to your standards, don't sell it to me. I know it's a big potential loss for you, but it also means I'm not going to buy that bar from you and I'm going to lose confidence in you. The customers aren't going to be happy with you. And they notice, you know, you're not going to put one over on them. <laughs> if they're a loyal customer of yours, that's great, but they're not going to buy that bar again once they have a bad one. Just don't do it. I mean, I think your point, use it in chocolate chip cookies or something like that. I would recommend finding another use for it, but don't give it to me. And if you get a batch of beans and the beans aren't good, don't put more money into the beans and make them into chocolate if they're not good. You're just wasting your money. I understand that when you buy beans, there's a lot of financial risk and other things that go into that, but figure out a different use for them, I guess. If you have to take them and if they're not good and they're not what you contracted for, then return them if you can.
1: I see a lot of issues, and I've experienced these myself as well in a new market, in an evolving market, where even as a new maker, you're not calibrated. So you're not skilled enough to maybe determine at the level that you're requesting to recognize what is excellent, acceptable, bad and so you're creating some things or you're turning out some things that you share with friends and family that let you know this is the best chocolate i've ever had how interesting how unique and you're very confident in again now a saturated marketplace that is filled with unfortunately in my opinion a lot more acceptable than excellent and in a library concept The curation is a huge investment and a huge responsibility to the consumer end that I don't think gets enough credit because people are still not recognizing those are the summer years of this field and how one trains themselves and gets themselves to the point of being able to recognize those flavors and to recommend to others. Before we get into a debate here of what's good, what's bad, but just more so, how do you ensure that you have? An offering that continues to delight, that might offer new rotation and still give possibilities to younger makers to kind of climb that ladder.
2: All excellent comments. What we ended up doing when we got to that awkward stage I was talking about, where there were a few more makers, but they really weren't doing a good job, is I thought, you know, I need my customers involved in this process because one, I'm one pallet. I had my team involved too, but me and my team are one set of pallets. But my customers, I want them involved. So I started this customer tasting panel, which a lot of chocolate makers became very familiar with. <laughs> they would send samples, we would do blind tastings. Amongst this group, we'd meet about once a month, sometimes more often, depending on you know how many samples we had. And it was probably about 40 people on the list. And I'd reliably get 15 to 20 showing up for a tasting. These are not experts, but they're people who are buying the chocolate. And it was interesting because we would do it blind and initially we included both origin and percent. That was all they would know as we were tasting. And they actually asked me to remove origin because they had certain origin biases. But it was a great way, one, to get my customers involved in the process and two, to really build community. Like some of them became friends, they'd take chocolate trips together. And it also strengthened the community of our own store and, you know, their loyalty to Chocolopolis. So that was one great way, one, getting them involved and, and two, helping kind of vet the bars. Going back to some of the other points you made, I was laughing when you were talking about, yeah, I gave chocolate to my friends and family. I can't tell you how many, I'm sure you run into this too, budding chocolate makers I'm like, oh, I make chocolate and I, I gave it to my friends and family and my colleagues and they thought it was the best chocolate they'd ever had. And I'm like, I will tell them, yeah, that's because they're standing in front of you. You just handed them chocolate. You made yourself with a lot of love. Of course they loved it. That doesn't mean it's good. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I can't tell you how many of my customers, the ones from the tasting panel who would go like travel to Paris or somewhere else for chocolate. And they would come back and they would say to me, oh, I met this great chocolate maker telling me all about this person. And they'd give me a taste of the chocolate and I'd be thinking, oh, this isn't very good. And they'd say to me, well, I'd never buy the bar again. Like in that moment, it was like the most amazing experience they'd had. And they were happy to buy a bar because they're, you know, they're meeting the maker. They're hearing their story. They're having this wonderful experience with them. So they're happy to buy the bar. But if the bar doesn't follow through with really good quality and what they're looking for. They're not going to buy it again. I think that kind of goes back to that point. Something you mentioned that again, a little bit on a tangent, one of the challenges with the library concept, you know, I mentioned that it's hard to swap things in and out. Like one of the things I love about what I get to do now, which is I just online, I do virtual tasting experiences and I have a handful of curated bundles Is I get to swap things out and rotate things through more frequently. And it's things that are maybe more new and interesting. And so it's exciting for me because I don't have to keep certain bars in stock that customers are looking for. The other challenge from a business perspective is, you know, I built up this clientele that had a palette for good bean to bar chocolate. And then one of the local large specialty supermarkets in the area reset their store, only their store that was down the hill from me, (laughs) reset the front of it and started offering craft chocolate. And we had some overlap. And I thought, so I just trained this customer base in this neighborhood. That store took only that one store. And they've got, I think, about 10 or 12 stores all over the greater Seattle area. They took that one store and they reset the front store. And they're now competing with me. And they're like probably about a quarter of a mile down the street.
1: That was a lot of topics. (laughs) (laughs) You made me think of a lot, Lauren. I think this will go on for the remainder of our time together. And that's what's going to be fun about this episode as well. We'd love to hear your sentiments on this because I've heard some of these things before, and of course, there's nothing wrong with bringing them up again, but do you feel like we're reaching sort of this stagnation, this place of just like, we can't move forward, (laughs) why these patterns keep repeating themselves. And unfortunately, some of the same topics emerge again and again, because I think you and I maybe even had face-to-face conversations in Seattle four or five years ago that were very similar.
2: I came from the business world. I like thinking at like the 10,000 foot level. And so I think our segment of the industry faces some challenges. And this is, again, where I think I'm hoping the FCA can help with these. But whether you like Starbucks or not, back in the day, they taught American consumers to be willing to pay more for coffee, right? We don't have anybody doing that in chocolate. So that's point number one. There's more to that. So point number one is there is nobody teaching American consumers to be willing to pay more for chocolate on a scale that is going to actually have a huge impact. I mean, I think we're all trying to do that, but that's more very high touch, hard to get volume on that. The other thing though, is Americans already drank coffee every day, right? They already drank coffee every day. If you're talking about drinking chocolate, which I think is actually probably one of the easiest ways into good chocolate, they have like Swiss Miss, right? If you're talking about buying chocolate for themselves, they're buying the Reese's peanut butter cups. They're saving the really good stuff only for gifting. But if you go to Paris, that's not the way it is, right? France has a culture and a tradition of buying themselves really good chocolate every day, or, you know, if that's their thing, right? But they, I remember being in Paris and standing in line at Pierre Hermé. It was just a random Sunday and the line was out the door and I was waiting to talk to somebody in there. Chloe had actually said to me, I'll oh, go talk to Alexandra. I'm like, okay. So my husband and I look and there's a line out the door. I'm like, oh, we'll walk around, come back later. We kept trying that and the line was still out the door. You know, it wasn't a holiday. It was people buying chocolate for themselves. We don't have that tradition in the U.S., right? That's a challenge, right? The cultural piece of it is missing where people are willing to pay more. And then we're missing somebody who's like a Starbucks who can help. Starbucks was not always big, but they did a really good job of scaling and and showing people how to pay more. And that brings me to the scaling point. You know, if you look at coffee, there are a lot of similarities with chocolate, but there's also a lot of differences, right? If you wanna open a coffee store, you buy a roaster, you build a store around it, you roast the beans and you pour water through them, right? And you sell it at a really high margin, so you're done. But with chocolate, you've got four or five more pieces of capital equipment at least. And so it's this huge capital expenditure. You've got this whole manufacturing process and then when you're done, you've got a product that's perishable in heat. And so it makes it really, really hard and expensive to scale. And I'm not telling anybody here anything they don't know, but I think that is one of the challenges we face, that and, the, and this lack of consumer demand at a level we need it. Now, with that said, I think we are in a much better place than we were in 2008. There's significantly more demand for craft chocolate. Many consumers understand it. Many are willing to buy it for themselves. But I think in order to get where we need to go, And I know this could be controversial, but the reality is we need some of our craft chocolate makers to be able to scale to some level in order to accomplish that. So I look at companies like Dick Taylor and French Broad, Dandelion; they are at least trying to do some level of scale. And I know there are others, but I think you kind of have to with the expenses that go into this business and the ability to kind of lead the consumer and build that demand.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you that it would be beneficial on a whole, see that there was someone in that space. And I think part of it has to do with the word acquisition and when that could happen. We've sort of been holding our bated breath of, is that going to be the case? Will there be another Scharfenberger? And maybe that's a race to have that happen to the top, if you will. But I am guilty of growing up in a household with Swiss Miss, Nestle Toll House, chocolate chip cookies, And I found a way in, and I'm sure that there's an opportunity for many others to do something similar.
2: The acquisition one's an interesting one because, you know, Hershey bought Scharfenberger and then sat on the brand and couldn't figure out what to do with it. And then they sold it for pennies on the dollar to a private equity firm a year ago. Yeah. So the one big acquisition was not a success, (laughs) right? So anybody else looking at this space, it is a tough one. It will be interesting if there's an acquisition, but it's got to be a company that can figure out what to do with it.
1: So interesting. With your mention of scalability, I would love to just get down to the brass tacks a bit of what some of those logistics or challenges in having a retail space are, because it's very easy in today's quote unquote digital landscape to build a website, to put some things that aren't even perhaps your own photos, their stock photos or prepared by the brand or maker. And build a beautiful website and start a brand on Instagram, another free platform. But when you get down to all of the things that you'll need to open the doors to a location and close it at night and pay the people and pay yourself, what did that look like for you? If you wouldn't mind maybe sharing some of the key takeaways from that time frame.
2: First of all, your comment about online and then moving into retail, I think no matter where you are, whether it's online or physical retail space, it's all about that community and building that loyalty and community and following. And you have to do that. You have to be genuine and you have to have that relationship with your customers. And there's, you know, different ways you would do that online versus in person. But I think that is kind of key to success in both of these, at least in the success of building up your customer base. I would say one of my learnings was less is more. I was trying to do way too many things. And unfortunately, and then I signed a long lease, which I would never do again. You know, we had the library of bars. We had confections initially. We always carried Christopher Elbow. And then we had confections initially that we brought in from a lot of other makers. And eventually we started making our own because I had a kitchen in the back for drinking chocolate and some other stuff. And it wasn't making enough money. That was why we started making our own confections, honestly. But then, you know, I have a really high bar. So it was like, okay, these have to be world-class. But we focused much more on the single origin, dark bonbons that were all about the chocolate. So it was a very different focus. But then, of course, it had to be that level of quality. Then we had drinking chocolate. We didn't have very many places to sit in the store. I hired an architect who came from retail, which was really important to me. But I realized now had absolutely no food experience. Never do that if you're opening a store with a kitchen in it, make sure your architect has food experience and knows about plumbing and electricity and the regulations and what they need to do. So that was it. But I guess I would say I was trying to do way too many things. You know, this is one of those, I wouldn't do it again. Like, but if I had to do it over, (laughs) I still wouldn't change the bar piece. Cause I think for me, that education piece, being able to educate people, that's really what makes me passionate. So for me, that was really fun. I think then I would focus on drinking chocolate and I would have made, the space a much more inviting, welcoming place where people could come hang out, like the third place, right? There's actually a place here called Third Place Books, and the local lore is that Starbucks stole the third place concept from this local bookstore. I think there might have even been a lawsuit. (laughs) But, you know, the third place, it's not your home, it's not your office, it's somewhere you go to hang out, but it creates community and it gets people coming back. You want to make it inviting. So I would say make it inviting, make it comfortable. Don't try to do too many things. Less is more We'll have a laser focus on what you're doing. And the other thing is don't sign a long lease. If you can get a two to three year lease with an option to renew, so you can decide over the two to three years, how's this working? If it's working okay, then okay, I I have an option to renew. Because once you move in and build out a place, you don't want to have to move. It's expensive. So you want the option to renew, but give yourself some flexibility. And then see if you can find a landlord who's really focused on local and community and wants small retailers who are going to create an experience its harder to find them, but they do exist. I think finding them is going to get you so much farther because they're also going to be supportive of you. They're going to understand you. They're looking for other businesses like yours, you know, is also going to drive the people that you want. And I guess that goes back to it too. I thought, Oh, I'm in Queen Anne. It's great demographics, great foot traffic, all this kind of thing. But what I eventually realized was it doesn't matter that these people have money and they're the right demographic if they don't like dark chocolate, you really need to be in a place where there's foodies or people who really appreciate what you're offering. So that's more important, I think, than the demographics. But you open up the physical space, of course, what are the three most important things? Retail, location, location, location. Yes, that's huge. You want a lot of foot traffic. And I think, you know, unfortunately, going back to my point about Paris, not only does Paris and France in general have people who are willing to buy chocolate for themselves, but Paris has huge density, right? New York has huge density. Seattle does not have huge density. I mean, it's getting density. Well, at least not in my lifetime, it's not going to be New York, right? But you really need that huge density. Of course, with that comes cost, but I think that's really also what you need. So look for a neighborhood that has that.
1: Those are really excellent points. Thank you for sharing, Lauren, and certainly I'm note-taking so that if I ever open my dream shop, I'll put them into practice. I can't help but think that in this now global marketplace where we have access to almost anything at our beck and call, and yet we're still sort of struggling with the definitions and the identity of craft chocolate, as well as its price point. I think it's not talked about very often, but you you might see some high-end bars around $18, $20, and then... In my area of the world, there's a lot of entry-level bars that are around five or six euros, which is equivalent to about $7 for 60, 70 grams. There's a fair amount of range there, but nothing in the way that you would think about a wine library, to go back to that comment. But I do see that in many cities where people want to establish these sort of education hubs of chocolate, it's getting more and more difficult to do so because of being priced out or being pushed out by big box brands and franchises. Do you have recommendations for people, maybe how they might budget such a concept, or even if you think you would dare say that chocolate needs to be on an entirely different model of monetary value to then enter such a business.
2: Let me start and if I'm not answering your question, please jump in. But I think in terms of the price points, you know, that goes back to consumer demand, the market will bear what the market will bear. And I think one of the things you've got to do when you're developing your strategy, if you're going to open a place is you've got to meet consumers where they are with something, or they're not going to come in. And I don't think I did a good job of that when I opened. I think it's finding that product in your line that is the right price point to get them in that is still quality, but maybe is something they're used to eating. If it's a dark chocolate bar, it's probably the dark chocolate with sea salt almonds. If it's, you know, a milk chocolate bar, I don't know what it would be, but something to do with peanut butter, you know, something that's going to get them in and is going to be priced right and then have a range of prices, but you've got to meet them where they are. When it comes to the real estate piece of it and the budgeting piece, I guess I would just say start small. If there's farmers markets or local markets that you can start at, if there's pop-ups, if there's ways you can collaborate with other retailers and have a pop-up in their store, I would start with that because you're going to keep your costs to a minimum that way. I don't know how pop-ups do it. I'm assuming it's a percent of sales, but you know farmers markets or small markets, it's usually some kind of booth cost. I would keep your fixed costs to a minimum, right? Have as much flexibility as you can until you start to build up that customer following, and then once you have enough of a customer following, and then you can think about, okay, maybe I want to open a retail store. And then you start trying to find that two to three-year lease with an option to renew (laughs) with a landlord who likes good food and wants a local community concept. In terms of budgeting, you know, that's the other thing. It really depends on what market you're in. And I think that's one of the challenges too with online is my cost base in Seattle is significantly higher than probably Cost bases in the Midwest, for example. So, if I'm running a retail store online and I'm competing with somebody in the Midwest who's running a retail store online, they have a significantly lower cost base than I do. When you think about how am i pricing my goods, one, you have to price it what the market will bear, what people are willing to buy for, but that's a combination of price and volume, right? My combination of price and volume is going to be different than somebody else somewhere else in the country. So, I can't really give you specific numbers, but you have to really think about that when you're putting your budget together.
1: You answered that well. It wasn't um, a well thought out question in terms of all of the, the moving parts and pieces. And of course, anyone who is listening in would have to adapt to where they are and the resources they have. We're all starting from different places and we're all entering markets that are very different in terms of what the cost of living might be and, and what the consumer education piece might be. The weather. That's something that I certainly battle with here is for about nine, 10 months of the year, we're having 75 degree Fahrenheit days.
2: Even the shipping costs, the people in the middle of the country have advantageous shipping costs and can also overnight and two day much better than those of us on the coast. So for much better rate usually. And so when you get into that hot weather, that also helps too. So being in the middle of the country has quite a few advantages.
1: It's an interesting point because I've noticed here, there are very few small scale brands at this point that have come up in the last 10 years, but they don't seem to be in the capital cities. It's mostly happening in the smaller towns, in the more affordable retail areas, and even some in like very small villages where they can build out larger factories and then run the wholesale model. There is a space for everyone. You just have to find the niche according to what you're passionate about and also what can support you.
2: Curious in where you are in Spain, do they have a similar, I mean, obviously I know they have probably the oldest chocolate tradition in Europe, but is it like France now where they maintained that and people
1: are used to paying a lot? It's unfortunately not like France at all. (laughs) Spain could have accessed a very important part of their history to acknowledge that they were the first European country to have chocolate, to appreciate it, to take advantage of it. There's many narratives to be told there and many wrongs to be righted, I think, with how you would share that story and, and tell the renaissance of that story. But we have a very now tourism-driven nation as a whole, and chocolate has really fallen by the wayside. So there are still a few large-scale producers hanging on to what they've always done, which is you know using bulk cocoa and crafting chocolate for mostly... Very dark roasted bars with almonds, as you said, and for like powdered variations of beverages like Swiss Miss and for the chocolate with churros concept. It will be quite interesting if people adapt to something that is certainly within their potential ancestral DNA of chocolate appreciation. What I think is like the creme de la creme, but the jamón del la jamón. <laughs> on par with where I think that a lot of people could use that metaphor to something that goes through a process that is fermented cured whatever you want to use that language of rest and repose where you are paying in part for that renting of space and time so yeah again we we kind of touched on this in terms of where I'd mentioned that that piece of stagnation that that I feel a part of, and and this might be really interesting to bring into it because here you are now over a decade in the industry, uh, nearing now 15 years, and you're still in it. You're still very much involved. You're still offering your time and sharing your insights. I have to wonder if there's a little bit of a burnout that those that have been in it since the beginning might feel in terms of continuing to have these conversations or to continuing to push forward with um, a certain credence. How do you feel about that?
2: Yes, but also, you know, fortunately, there's a lot of new interest in blood and energy. So if I look at who's left in the last couple of years, I closed Chocolopolis, Cacao in Portland closed, Fog City News just closed, the Chocolate Garage closed, Patrick Chocolate, he hasn't been making chocolate, Rogue Chocolatier is gone. We've all been doing this for a very long time. I think there's some level of Burnout. out. Sure. When I closed the store, I made the decision to close the store before COVID. It's just my lease was up during COVID. It was freeing. I mean, you know, like I said, the part I really enjoy is the building community and educating people. And I'm able to do that better virtually, I think, because I can do it all over the US, not just in Seattle. And, and as I said earlier, instead of having an entire library of chocolate, that is a lot of financial risk for me, I can now have a few bars that I'm curating that I'm really enjoying, and I can rotate them off. And for me, there's certainly an amount of burnout. Unfortunately, because of COVID and because of other stuff, I have not really been able to take any time off. I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> I like juggling a lot of balls. I have a lot of energy. So I think I've remained involved. I think, as you said before, I'm newly elected president of the board of the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, which, you know, like any board, the board is a volunteer thing. The Officers are a volunteer thing. We have staff, like the executive director that work for the FCIA, but we're all volunteer. And so we were doing this because we were all passionate about it and we want to see the industry move forward. And as I said earlier, I like thinking about things very strategically. And I I feel like it's pretty clear to me what needs to happen. I can't tell you how we're going to get there, how we're going to do it, but that's one way I can stay involved. So I still have a passion for chocolate and for everybody in the industry and moving it forward at a more global level. And I also really love the people in this industry. I love everybody's passion for improving the lives of cacao farmers. I met a lot of really interesting and cool people. It's a community as well that I really enjoy being a part of. There's certainly a level of burnout. I wasn't able to scale Chocolopolis, honestly, the way I wanted to, again, I really like growing things. I like doing things big and strategic and I had hoped to be able to do that, but that didn't work for me sitting in a retail store all day was getting kind of (laughs) old, to be honest. I think the other companies I mentioned, I'm guessing that they faced some combination of that financial other things, or maybe it was just time to do something else. Like I said, there's so many craft chocolate makers now and where I was talking before about that awkward period that we went through, I feel like we got out of that. Maybe it's because there's so many now that there's a lot to choose from. And so I'm always pleasantly surprised when I find a new chocolate maker who's doing something really good. But I feel like these days I find more and more that I think are actually doing a great job when I first come across them. And so it's great to have all that energy and excitement. And I don't think the industry as a whole will ever run out of that.
1: Thank you for sharing that and being vulnerable about that. It's really interesting to see the dynamics of how the various communities grow and thrive. And I think what I was confused about in the very beginning was that there was a different community to begin with. The community of my professional space would not be the community that would be part of my purchasing power base. And how to create that space, how to segment between how to maneuver worlds that are now very busy, very loud between emails and communication on social media and you know various messaging that you need to get across in, in terms of serving then those two communities. So certainly those of us who have benefited from the veterans in the industry that are here and still providing information and feedback, we're quite grateful for that. I certainly have benefited learning from many people in various formats, but where do you see things going in the next couple of years? Of course, we don't have crystal balls, but what maybe is a, a hope for where you would like to see the craft sector or even the conventional sector grow?
2: The bogey is really the like, let's increase consumer demand and, and however we do that. And it's hoping to see some of the companies that are scaling continue to scale in a way that is stays true to who they are, but also helps get craft chocolate to more consumers. And I think, you know, just because you scale doesn't mean you can't stay true to who you are. I think you just have to have very strong values and be very clear what your values are as a company. And then when you scale, just stay true to them. You know, sometimes in manufacturing, with process control and more manufacturing discipline comes that consistency of product. And I cannot sell a product that one time is like world-class and the next time has moldy cacao in it. That doesn't work. Whatever you think about scaling, if you're not going to have manufacturing process control, you're never going to provide a product that's consistently good that is going to have a long life. That's my take on it. So, anyway, I would like to see some of these companies continue to scale in a successful way that's going to get us more of that consumer demand. And then, of course, on a big level, sure, like everybody else, I'd love to see all the issues with big chocolate resolved, or maybe not resolved, but on a road to real resolution. But, you know, these are big complex issues, right? You've got developing countries with not great infrastructure. And I'm not excusing the big companies for anything, but I think it's more than just the big companies. It has to be a combination. And I'm not an expert in this. My own armchair analysis is it's got to be a combination of their governments, these companies, and just lots of different programs. Because you know I am a supply chain person. That's actually, I came from supply chain visibility. I'm actually doing some work in supply chain visibility again. And so I get the realities of supply chain, right? You've got these Developing countries that don't have great infrastructure and you've got, you know, collection points where you're collecting cacao, it's unrealistic to expect that you're probably going to have complete visibility as to where it came before it was in the collection point. That's just one example. It's very hard to have a completely visible supply chain when you're in these countries. And so it really does need to be, um, I think, a combination of their governments and these companies and probably a lot of the actors we work with in the craft chocolate segment. But I would love to see those issues, if not completely resolved, certainly heading in the right direction and seeing the farmers being paid more. You know, all the other issues around cacao, it would be great to see them <laughs> start to be resolved. I think another thing for me is, you know, and Brad Kinzer was the president of the STIA and I was the vice president. So we spent a lot of time together. and He and I both, we look at the Specialty Coffee Association. That's something we were both looking at. And, you know, they're different than we are, but they've done a lot of really interesting stuff where, you know, they have a grading system and standards, and the chocolate industry does not have standards. And I know there's the biodiversity group that's working on it, and lots of players in the industry have seats at the table. It is always amazing to me how surprisingly political those things are. I'm not there, but my sense is this is taking an awful long time for everybody to agree. And and there are a lot of standards that different groups have, so I get that. But until we can come to a standard as an industry, you're never going to have, like you look at the specialty coffee association, they've got Q graders, they've got competitions, but you can't really do that as an industry until you have that standard. You know, we aren't going to be able to go the direction they've gone until the standard happens. It has to be a standard that's useful that a lot of people adopt. So it can't just be a group sitting down in an international organization and setting it and then throwing it over the fence and being like, okay, here, use this. And then nobody uses it. Like I said, I have no special insight into that. I just tear through the grapevine what's happening. That's my take on it.
1: We are certainly welcome to be armchair experts. That's one of our specialties here. I think that would be incredibly amazing to witness that come to pass because knowing from where we have come from, and, and certainly I was on board a little bit later than you and, and many others that were at the sort of beginning phases of craft chocolate, but To see that professionalization of the industry, to know that there would be not only things that we would like to see achieved, but things that we can put on our resume would really change the entire landscape. I mean, right now, to use myself as an example, you know, you're creating your own profession and some people might do well at that. But until there are a few more of these standards in place that allow you a bit more confidence to say okay this is where I am and this is where I need to go I think we're doing a disservice to the generations that will come next I will say that I was talking to a coffee trader who said to me oh it took us 25 years to come up with that standard (laughs) could take a while about 15 years away probably maybe more Lauren, just as we close out here, it might be interesting to spend some time looking at some of the areas where communities have evolved or where there have been some standards agreed upon, even if it might be in little micro circles of individuals who get together and fawn over the latest releases. Can you talk about some of your experiences in witnessing those in various locations and also where you're a part of that in Seattle? Yeah, sure.
2: One of my customers who became a good friend was barbie van horn who many of you may know barbie and i started talking one day and i had said you know i was thinking of starting a chocolate society, and she's like oh so was i so we decided to collaborate at the time i still had chocolopolis so it was about continuing to build more avenues of community and i think you know for barbie it's her lifelong passion for chocolate There are a number of chocolate societies around the country and the world. I think there are probably more now than there were when we founded it, but there were probably about four or five when we founded ours. I know the Manhattan Chocolate Society is pretty serious. It's, I think, closed membership. You have to be invited, I'm pretty sure. The Santa Monica one is, I think, more open. So there's lots of different societies and approaches. We decided to make ours completely open to the community. I lead lots of educational and tasting events through the business. But the Pacific Northwest Chocolate Society is definitely sort of more of a low-key participant-driven gathering that anybody can come to. So it's not exclusive. It's really anybody who loves chocolate. And we'll pick a theme each month, and people will bring bars. Obviously, it's virtual right now, which, again, it's nice because we've had people join us from other parts of the country and even South America. So that's been kind of cool. Our upcoming one is on texture, which for me is a big issue. For some people, it's not an issue. But what will happen is, you know, a few of us will gather on Zoom and we'll all bring chocolate and we'll talk about what we're tasting and comments on texture and and makers. So I found this bar, how'd you get it? So it really is an informal participant-driven community. And it's fun for me because with the Chocolopolis stuff, I have to prepare and it's like a big thing here, I can just show up (laughs) and be a participant. It's a lot more fun that way. So it is a very open welcoming, just kind of participant-driven group, which is very different, I think, than some of the others, but it kind of depends. Everybody's done their own. Oh, and I forgot Utah Chocolate Society, that's the other one. Actually, I don't know if they're still meeting, but I know they used to have a lot of in-person events.
1: I was just thinking as a fun question here to finish up. I'm envisioning what the bar would be that you would describe yourself in. Would it be a blend? Would it be an origin? Would it be a certain texture? what would go into the Lauren Adler bar?
2: Excellent question. I've never been asked that before. It could be a blend. For me, it has to have smooth, creamy texture and it's got to have complexity. And it has to be complexity that I like. Like, I don't like smoky things. You know, I know what my tasting biases are. I do not like smoky things. (laughs) Don't give me a Papua New Guinea that tastes like cherries that have been smoked to death. And, you know, when I first started tasting craft chocolate, I always say, if you look at like 99% of our stories, it's always about a bar of Madagascar, which it was for me too. It was the Bonat Madagascar bar, which I tasted and was like, oh my gosh, I don't like things that are bitter. I actually don't drink coffee, although I know it's very acidic. I don't like things I think that are over-roasted, like that kind of bitter. And I think I always assumed dark chocolate was before I got into tasting it. And honestly, like you, I grew up eating Hershey's milk chocolate. (laughs) Everybody liked dark chocolate. And then I had this bar, but Madagascar and was blown away. And was like, Oh, this is really good. And so that got me into it. And when I first started tasting bars, it was all about that. Like what's going to punch me in the face with personality. Oh, it's a screaming cherry bar. Like I can taste the cherries. But I think now that I've been in this for many years, I'm more interested in a bar that is complex and has a lot going on. And I think there's a lot that I taste from craft chocolate makers. That's very good now, nowadays. But the thing that's often missing, well, besides the texture, because I get a lot of bad texture, but the thing that's often missing is the complexity. Like it might have one or two nice notes, but that might be it, right? I want something that's going to give me this incredible experience by the time it's finished melting that's got at least four or five notes (laughs) and is smooth and creamy. So I guess it could be a blend or it could be an origin as long as it does that. And I think you know, Soma is particularly good. I always thought they were very good at blending. Like I think a lot of tra- chocolate makers use blends as their trash can for those bad beans, which I don't do that. <laughs> but Soma, I thought, always thought did a very nice job at blending. The sum is better than the parts, and made a really nice bar. But they were using good cacao; they were not using it as their trash can.
1: A complex, smooth bar—that's who I would be. Could be blend, could be origin. I would also take part in that bar. That sounds delicious. That's yours. Oh, gosh. When I imagined the question, I was also sort of thinking, like, how we embody those bars. So I think I'm a blend because of all the different places I've been and, like, who has informed me and, and what has made me. But I'm not opposed to blends. I think they could be sort of the next phase in craft chocolate where we get this level of complexity. And we can move away as well from some of those, not disregarding what the origin is, like, certainly giving them credit but then providing kind of greater nuance of what is the artistry of the maker when they can work with various beans. My point being that like cocoa camellia is amazing, but how many bars will I have to taste that have that very similar profile and almost like a repetition or a replicate of one another. And I think with blends, there could be a lot more proposed artistry that, that we would see.
2: I think that's a really good point actually, because when you're talking about places like Peru, there's so many micro origins that you can taste five bars from near areas in Peru, but like they're going to taste different. But when you're dealing with one fermentary, yes, it's after a while, it's like, okay. <laughs> but that's interesting in terms of your question, in, in the way you were seeing it, I would say I'm a blend. I've had a lot of life experiences that are very diverse. I like having tons of things going on and I like doing many things. Life's too short to be a single origin. <laughs> <laughs> no shade to single origins chocolate.
1: No, but I think with all of us as well, like craving any sort of travel at this point, it makes you want to create a plethora of possibilities.
2: I'm hoping to lead future travel sessions. We had a, a consumer trip planned for Ecuador when all this hit. So obviously that got postponed and then canceled. But I'm also hoping at some point to take a group to Uganda. So we shall see when we can travel again. But like you, I miss that part. I miss traveling so much.
1: I sure hope so. Would you then share with us, Lauren, where obviously we can find you. We know where to find you and I'll put those links, but what is maybe the next upcoming event that you have that people can take part in or participate?
2: I'm preparing some bundles for Valentine's Day with actually a Valentine's Day tasting. So that's one. Actually, I have a conversation with a small chocolate maker tomorrow about doing an event together, But right? I'm not going to spill the beans until we've talked. We've got to work it out, but this is where it's really fun. I tasted her bars recently and I was like, Oh, these are really good. Assuming we can work things out. I'm hoping to get that on the books for March. Those are all virtual events. You know, you buy three bars and then you get invited to the zoom event and then we do a tasting and they they talk and it's really fun. You get to interact with the maker. That's what I do for my community. So, you know, I do private tasting events for corporate groups and whatever. And then for my community, this is the fun part for me let me find a new maker. Let's meet this maker. Everybody get some chocolate and and we'll enjoy this together.
1: Wonderful. Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure to get to know your story a little better and to be able to share it with the community here.
2: And thank you, Lauren. I really, like I said, I appreciate everything you do. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you and I, I
1: hope we'll be able to do it some more, maybe in person soon.